Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you would help us to grow and understand the truth of it and it would make sense. I pray that it would be uh, the foundation of our growing and our serving and our glorifying you in all that we do. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we started last week. We talked about the Trinity, understanding it. So I'm going to do a quick review on what I covered last week and then finish what I didn't cover. And then we'll jump into another topic that's part of that, uh, that is a very, very misunderstood. Uh, this is an area which is important that we grasp the truth of it. And so in your notes, number one, the definition of the Trinity is there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons. One God who exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are each fully and equally God. So, one God, three distinct, three distinct persons. And uh, often we emphasize one uh, out of balance to the other. And so it's important that we understand this principle. Number two, God is one God. He is the only God. He is the only God. There's one God and there is only one. He is the only God. Idolatry was the sin of the Old Testament. And so even still today, people have multiple gods just to cover the bases. And God says, I am it. I am all there is. Deuteronomy 4.35, to you it, has, it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other. He is God. There is no other besides him. Deuteronomy 4.39, know therefore today and take it to your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. There is no other. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And so God is one. He is the only God. Number three, God exists in the form of three distinct personalities. Three distinct, distinct personalities. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is three distinct personalities that are one. And the, a clear picture of that in the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descending as a dove in the form of a dove and the heavens, out of the heavens, and God speaking, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So you have the Father speaking from heaven, Jesus on the earth being baptized, the Spirit of God coming down, descending in the form of a dove. Three distinct personalities at the same time. And so we'll look at the topic of modalism, which is a heresy, which says that uh, God takes on three forms and changes one to the other. Existing at the same time would be impossible for the doctrine of modalism, where there is one changing forms or appearances. There are three distinct personalities. Number four, each member of the Trinity is equally God, all having the attributes of God of eternality, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence. So the characteristics of God, they all have. They're all without beginning. None of them were created. They've existed forever and ever and ever. No matter how far back you go, 
there they exist. And there is a point at which nothing existed because everything except the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are created. So at some point that nothing existed except them, and they have always existed and always will. They're all-knowing, all-powerful. Every place at once they have the attributes of God. As you go through and study each person of the Trinity, you'll find those attributes attributed to each one of them. I'll give you just a couple. John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning, the word beginning means before anything existed. Before anything existed, before creation, uh, there was a single atom. Before there was an angel. In the beginning was the Word, speaking of Jesus, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So Jesus was in the beginning, uh, without beginning, uh, with the Father, and he's the creator of all things. Acts 5, speaking of the Holy Spirit. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? To the light, to the Holy Spirit, a, a personality, and to keep back some of the price of the land while it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit, and then he says you've lied to God. And again, as you study the Trinity, if you want to go through and look up all the references and the verses, you'll see the attributes of God attributed to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they are equal and have always existed. Number seven, the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit are one in purpose, one in unity, one in love, one in essence. They're not one in person. They are three personalities, three persons, and their unity is the unity of, of love and purpose, essence. So God is love, the love that the Father has for the Son, the love that the Father has for the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit for the Father and the Son, the Son for the Holy Spirit and the Father is infinite as they love each other as three distinct personalities. Their agreement on what they're doing is so much as if they were one, but they are still three distinct persons. John 10:30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And Jesus is saying that as a distinct person uh, about the Father and to the Father. And so you see illustrations used. Some people will say, well, uh, water and ice and steam, that's modalism. That's not accurate, not even close to what the Bible teaches. That's one element changing forms. Uh, the, sometimes people will use the egg and the shell and the yolk and the, the white. That's modalism. Uh, it's not the accurate view of the Bible. Most cults teach an out-of-view uh, teaching about, and we'll look at what some of those heresies are over the years. But the best illustration of the Trinity is a good, in fact, perfect marriage. I'm a person, Patty is a person, and the, and the father said that man shall leave his father and uh, mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. They love each other, they're intent on one purpose, they're in agreement. And then Jesus prays in John 17, he said, I pray, Father, that the church will be one even as you and I are one. And so a church in agreement is a picture or an illustration of the Trinity. The love, the unity, the agreement, 
uh, he prayed would be as great as the Trinity was, that they would be the same as it were. And so distinct personalities, but their unity, their agreement, their love, their essence, everything is as if they were one, but very much three distinct personalities. Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one. They shall be one, one flesh. Number nine, the greatest cost that was paid by God for our salvation was the breaking of this infinite oneness while Jesus hung on the cross. This is probably one of the areas in which we are most ignorant of the price of our salvation. When the uh, uh, movie came out, The Passion of the Christ, emphasizing the physical beating, the, the torture on the cross, many people were... Uh, amazed that the price was paid, but the physical pain that Jesus paid, I don't believe comes close uh, to that which he experienced. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were one forever and ever and ever and ever. And at one moment on the cross, when Jesus became our sin, that is, all my sin, past, present, and future, yours of every person that ever lived, were put on Jesus. And the Bible says he became our sin. That is, he, God looked at him as if he actually committed that sin, the Father, and Jesus felt the remorse. Isaiah 53 says he felt the guilt and the pain and the remorse uh, of that sin, as if he actually did it. And at that moment, the Father turned his back on his Son. That unity was broken, never had been before for all eternity. And Jesus cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That price was impossible for us to comprehend. Uh, and the fact is they knew, they chose, they planned that to happen so that we might live with them for all eternity. And so that's a huge price that was paid for my salvation that for that period until Jesus rose from the dead, their fellowship was broken uh, for three days. What had always existed no longer existed and that happened so I could live with them forever and ever and ever. Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? I can't imagine what that felt like. Uh, and for the Father, uh, what that felt like. So that's the review from last week. You all got that. So some... Heresies. Number 10, one of the heresies taught concerning the Trinity is modalism. And it's common even with a lot of Baptists and a lot of evangelical, uh, uh, doctrinally correct individuals because we don't think a lot about the Trinity, we don't study a lot about it, and so we come up with sort of surfacey kind of views. And modalism is, I hear all the time from people, in the sense of the Father, and then He changes and becomes the Son, then He changes and becomes the Holy Spirit, then He changes and goes back to the Holy Spirit, I mean the Son, and so you have uh, one with four forms, uh, modalism. Uh, modalism teaches that God is su successively Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is not simultaneously Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, so it just misses the whole view of the community aspect, the community, the family We, uh, 
the church, when you read about our relationship with Jesus, Jesus says, you will sit at a th- on a throne to my right even as I sit on a throne to my Father's right. And so that statement puts us at a very high position. And in fact, we now are, will be at the wedding feast of the Son, the bride of Christ. We will rule with Him, be with Him, fellowship with Him. Our relationship with Him will be the same as His relationship with the Father. I say that one more time in case it got by you. Our relationship with Jesus will be the same as Jesus' relationship with the Father in the sense of our proximity, our rulership, our relationship. And so in the very beginning, when God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, there was a statement of, let's increase the family from three to four, uh, the bride of Christ. And so that's a significant statement and a significant purpose that has taken many, many years to fulfill. It's the center of everything that God has done, the bride of Christ. And so that's who I am. That's who you are. Uh, and we will be with him forever and ever and ever. And in this life now, we are the illustration of the Trinity. Agreement is important, very important, because we're the picture. Jesus said, I pray, Father, that you will make them one even as you and I are one so that the world will see that unity and that love and will believe. And so it's critically important that we don't mess up the picture with our lack of unity and our lack of love and conflict. And so the devil knows how to mess up the picture. He wants to do that. So he messes up marriages. He messes up churches. So the message doesn't get through to the world about what God is like. <clears throat> the largest group that holds this doctrine of modalism today is the United Pentecostal Church. And uh, they're very much into one God uh, in one time at one place. And so sometimes you will hear the doctrine, Jesus only. Jesus only, that means that their view is that there is no Father, there is no Holy Spirit now. There was at successive times, but now it's Jesus only. And so that's a major uh, tenet in their doctrine. Number 11, another heresy is called Arianism, taught by an early church leader named Arius and condemned as heresy by the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. If you read early church history, they had a number of councils. The purpose of these councils, because it was before the church, while the church was just getting started, and there wasn't the the canon of Scripture, the recognized Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, the writings of Paul that formed the doctrine of the church. And so there were lots of things being taught and things would be accepted. And so they would have these councils. They would get everybody together. There were recognized church leaders, and they would discuss about what was uh, uh, heresy and what was true. And so these various councils deal with these heresies. And so Arianism was declared to be a heresy way back in 325. Number 12, Arianism teaches that Jesus is not God, but that he is the highest created being by God. And so they would land on the word begotten as a statement of creation. And so the Father was eternal, and the Son was created, and the word spirit is not a person but a force or uh, an influence. So there's one God, the Father. Jesus was created by uh, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit is not really a person 
but just the influence of or the force of God the Father. Uh, number 13, Arianism is the official doctrine of the Jehovah Witness who teach that Jesus is the Old Testament angel Michael, that the Holy Spirit is a cosmic force of Jehovah. So right at the very beginning, these heresies began to be taught about who God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are, how they relate to each other and one another, and these were dealt with early on. And so these various heresies have infiltrated our church to degrees simply in the basis of, of not seriously studying or understanding, and that's how you get the illustration of water, steam, and ice, and various things that come about. The Trinity is really not that difficult to understand. Uh, one God, three persons, a marriage, a church, distinct personalities, but so much one in purpose and unity and in love. They are like they are one, but still three. And so obviously when the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are without sin, their motives, their unity, their love is pure and it's infinite. Uh, it's way beyond what we now experience. But even still, there's three distinct personalities existing together in relationship to one another. The key word is community. Let us make man in our image, in our image together. And we are added to that. Uh, and that is almost incomprehensible. Now, obviously, we're not equal to because we're created. But we will be in community with we will live with, we will reign with, we will fellowship with, we will enjoy, they will enjoy us, uh, the ultimate goal of God. Number 14, tritheism is the view of Mormonism and teaches that the Trinity consists of three equal, independent, and autonomous beings, none of who are eternal. So they do emphasize the three personalities, but we de-emphasize the uh, fact that they are all three God. Three equal, independent, autonomous beings, none of who are eternal. That is, all of them at some point began. They also teach that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are not equal to the Father, but spirit children along with Lucifer. <clears throat> Jesus was created by the Father as well as the Holy Spirit along with Lucifer and other angels. They teach that Jesus and Lucifer are brothers, and they got into a spat early on. And now we have this conflict between the two brothers. Mormonism also teaches that there are many gods of, of many worlds. These three are just the gods of this world, the gods that we presently relate to. <clears throat> Someone once said to me, Mormonism isn't that much different than uh, 
evangelicalism, and I said, that's simply because you don't understand uh, the teaching, the full teaching of Mormonism. It is very much different. Uh, they believe in Jesus. We believe in Jesus. There's a big difference between the Jesus they believe in and the Jesus we believe in. Correct. Jesus is created by God. He's not eternal. and doesn't have the attributes of God. Um, so you can believe in a historical person. The gospel. You remember the gospel? You have five fingers for a reason. Jesus is God. The first point of the gospel. He is God. Equal with the Father. Always in existence with the Father. God is the one who provided us with our salvation. Jesus is God, he became flesh, just like us. He emptied himself of all that he was as God, took upon himself the form of a man so that we could become like him. He lived a perfect sinless life, not sinning once, not even in thought or deed. He took our sins upon himself. He became our sin. And the fellowship of the Father and the Son was broken because he became our sin. He died on the cross experiencing the wrath of God against our sin. God punished his own son, whom he had always been one with. He punished Jesus in our place for our sin. He died on that cross, and he was buried. And, and number five, he rose from the dead. Three days later, he's alive today. And he is ruling and reigning with God the Father, God, and we will join him someday as the bride of Christ. All right. Now, in your notes, we're going to look at a, a, a word that... Uh, regularly gets brought up to cloud the whole picture of uh, the Trinity, the oneness of Christ, and that's the word begotten. I went through this a couple of years ago, so you may have remembered it, but I thought it would be good to go through it again. So, and you know, it's number one, Jesus was and is God, the second person of the Trinity, infinite and eternal, infinite and eternal, without beginning or end. He always has always existed with the Father. So when you study the Trinity, you study God, you then if you're doing uh, theological studies, you would study everything that has to do with the Father and also everything that has to do with the Son and everything with the Holy Spirit. And so theologically, if you have a theology work, it'll be under the chapter of, of uh, what we might call God proper or God the Father and then Christology and pneumatology. Pneumatology, I have a uh, air compressor in my shop and one of the things I do with my air compressor is run pneumatic tools pneumatic what's a pneumatic tool tools run by air the Greek word pneumos uh, spirit and so hagias pneumos the Holy Spirit uh, we study pneumatology that's the study of everything in the Bible about what the spirit does his role his relationship with the father with the son and Christology is everything about Jesus, the Son of God, his role, his beginning, his equality with God, and then um, theology proper, the study of the Father and everything about him, and you put those together. So this is part of Christology. Uh, Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed whom he appointed. The Father appoints the Son, heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So Jesus is God, has always existed. Now we looked last week a little bit about the various roles. 
Uh, God the Father has a role to play. God the Son has a role to play. The Holy Spirit has a role to play. You never see Jesus sending the Father. The Father always sends the Son. You never see the Father seeking the will of the Son. You always see the Son seeking the will of the Father. And Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit never sends the Son and never sends the Father. Does that mean that they're not equal? No, not at all. Roles don't indicate unequality. It just indicates agreement about their roles, what they play. So the Father played a role in creation, the Son played a role in creation, the Spirit played a role in creation. The Father played a role in my salvation, the Son played a role in my salvation, the Holy Spirit plays a role in my salvation. How did they come up with those roles? We don't have a clue. But some point, at the beginning, their relationship is one but uh, plays a role. So What's the big deal that the devil wants to do with us today, with the world today, with marriage? Ah, let's have the same roles. Let's be 50-50. Let's confuse genders uh, in the name of equality. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal. They're one. They're in total, complete, infinite love with each other, but they are different and different in their roles. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Spirit. They are equal, they are one, they are in total agreement, but with different roles. And when we join them, we will have a role to play that is different yet. And so understanding the Trinity is important to understanding my relationship with my wife and my relationship with you. We have roles that have been assigned to us by God and they're distinct, but they have nothing to do with worth or value. Um, and so once a wife said, I don't know why I have to be submissive to my husband. Doesn't that suggest that he is more important than I am? I said, Jesus didn't do anything, it says in the word, without being submissive to the Father. Does that mean he's less God, less important, less holy than God the Father? Well, I don't think so. So why would it suggest that of you? Uh, It's a simple role that's assigned for the purpose of unity for the purpose of unity. Number two, Jesus is omnipotent, infinitely powerful. Jesus is omniscient, knows and understands everything, and he is omnipresent. He is every place. He has all the attributes of God. Number three, Jesus is the only begotten Son of God the Father, the only begotten Son of God the Father. Now that line right there is what a lot of people land on when they start talking about the fact that Jesus is created less than God, not God. And so it's important that we understand. If somebody asks you, well, doesn't it say that Jesus is begotten? Doesn't that mean that he's created? Doesn't that, would that not suggest that he is less than God? Wouldn't that suggest that the Mormons are right? Hebrews 1.5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Today I have begotten you. Begottenness suggests beginning. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Psalms 2.7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So Old Testament as well as New. John 1.18, no one has seen God at, the any, at any time, the only begotten The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. 
And again, begotten God. John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Number four, key, circle this one. Jesus was begotten when He left heaven, became flesh, and became exactly like us. He left heaven, emptied himself of all that he was as God, became exactly like us. When Jesus was born as a baby, he was born with no character, just like you. And he grew in character, just like us. He grew in wisdom, just like us. Um, he wasn't omnipresent when he was born as a baby. He was in one place at one time. He wasn't uh, omnipotent as a baby, he was weak and frail with all the helplessness that I had as a baby and that you had as a baby. He experienced everything uh, that we experienced, emptying himself, setting apart all that he was as God and becoming flesh. At that point, at point of conception, he was begotten. <clears throat> John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh, became Jesus became flesh, dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Luke 1, 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb, speaking to Mary now, and bear a son, you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now this was a beginning of a new thing. Luke 135, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child should be called the Son of God. Should be called the Son of God. Number five, the begottenness of Jesus was a change in form and image. It was not his beginning. He was not created. It was a change in form and image. He emptied himself of all that he was as God, Philippians chapter 2, and took upon himself the form of a man, the form of a servant. But that wasn't his beginning as a person. It was a change of form and image that was part of the plan for us to become part of the family. Hebrews 2.14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that's me, that's you, share in flesh and blood, we are share in blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And so he partook willingly of the same, that is, became flesh and blood like you and I. Verse 17, Therefore he had, he had, that was a requirement, the requirement for us to become like him. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It's the only way he could be our substitute was to become like us. Philippians 2.5, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, he was God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself when you talk about the price that Jesus paid for my salvation, the torture on the cross is obviously a price, but how far a distance was that? 
How far did he travel emptying himself of all that he was as God? Uh, that's basically incomprehensible. Leaving heaven, leaving his uh, relationship with the Father, setting that all aside, and then traveling down, 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 being born into the world, becoming a single-cell embryo in the womb of Mary, with all the frailty, with all the weakness, with all the limitations, born into the world as a baby, and was a servant of people, and then as a man uh, was crucified, tortured, and then received our sin on himself and experienced the full wrath of the Father against himself, and their oneness was broken <clears throat> Hebrews 1.10, You, Lord, in the beginning, in the beginning, that's before anything existed, laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all will become old like a garment and like a mantle. You will roll them up like a garment. They also will be changed, but you are the same. Your years will not come to an end, speaking of Jesus. Number six, Jesus' begottenness is permanent. I don't know if you ever thought about this, Jesus empty himself of all that he was as God, takes upon himself, he changes form and image for our sake. And that change is permanent, eternal. When he agreed to become like us, he was committing to that form and image for eternity. <clears throat> Why did he do that? Because he saw me and wanted me to be with him and live with him and fellowship with him and enjoy him and he me. And he knew that simply creating a being from nothing, that being wouldn't even be close to being worthy of being called the bride of Christ. And there was a whole process. Included in that process was my uh, freedom, my choosing, my loving, which would entail my sinning, that had to be fixed, solved. And so the solution for my sin, so that I could live with him uh, as a member of the family, as it were, was fairly complicated, including God becoming flesh, becoming like us in nature. First John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Speaking of our physical appearance, our form, our image, our nature. Some would think this applies to character. It doesn't. Uh, we've talked about that. I won't go into that now. But we will be like him because he became like us. And when we receive our glorified bodies, we will have a body like that which Jesus has. Number seven, Jesus never stopped being God when he became flesh. He just temporarily set aside the attributes of God. It was always God, his position of God, but those attributes of being omnipresent, omnipotent, were temporarily set aside so that he could experience everything that we experience, so he could be tempted in the same way we are, way we are tempted, with the same limitations, the same struggles. There's some teaching that will say or suggest that he stopped being God. He never stopped being God. His emptying himself of all that he was as God wasn't his position or his title or his relationship. It was simply the attributes. Hebrews 2.9, For we do not see him who was made 
we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Jesus, made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Number eight, Jesus has now, as the begotten Son of God, reclaimed the attributes of God while remaining like us. He rose from the dead. And the views of him in the book of Revelation, the risen, crucified Christ, he has uh, taken up, picked up again that which he set aside temporarily when he became flesh to live like we live. And uh, he, is, he has the attributes of God, but he is still like us. Hebrews 1.3, and he is the radiance of his glory. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the Father's glory. The exact representation of his nature upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he picked all the attributes back up again. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Number nine, Jesus, as a man, grew in character just like we do. He became, and he became perfect, perfect in character in this life. <clears throat> So Hebrews says he sympathizes with us, he understands us. And the reason is because he became like us. I don't know if you've thought through the full implication of that. There's a sense in which all-knowing God, prior to the incarnation of Christ, didn't understand us. Uh, all-knowing and Understanding are different. Understanding is not possible until you experience. And so Jesus experienced. And so he became, it says, someone who understood us. And because he understands us, he can come to our aid and help us and strengthen us. <clears throat> Hebrews 2.10, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory. That's us to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. That's Jesus. To perfect, that means he wasn't perfect. It doesn't mean he was sinful. It means his character wasn't full grown. And Jesus was perfected as he became mature in character by the Father orchestrating the details of his life. And suffering was the key tool that the Father used to develop his character. So is he in the process of doing that for me, developing my character? Sure he is. He wants me to become as much like Jesus as is possible in this life. And what's his main tool? Same as Jesus. If it took suffering to develop the character of Jesus, who am I to think that I can get it some other way? <clears throat> Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience. He learned obedience. Jesus, eternal, infinite God, emptied himself of all that he was as God, was born into this world as a person with the frailties and the limitations of a person, including the absence of wisdom and character. And he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Jesus grew in character, he grew in wisdom, and he learned obedience to the Father through that which he suffered. Number 10, the purpose of Jesus remaining the only begotten is for the sake of fellowshipping with us for all eternity. He became like us in order to know us. 
can back that up. Yeah, there we go. The purpose for Jesus remaining the only begotten. Now, when I see him, I will be like him, and I will be with him, and I will enjoy him, and he will enjoy me, and I will be part of the family of God, and you as well. So let me add this in. I haven't said this for a while in case you might have forgotten. Life has a purpose, two purposes, two main purposes. One is that we become like him in character as much as possible in the time we have. The other is bearing as much fruit as we possibly can, which is part of the whole process of becoming like him. Uh, Psalms chapter 90 verse 12 says, teach us to number, none of those are on there so don't switch, teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we might present to you a heart of wisdom. That word wisdom has to do with character. And so the average individual thinks that when they die, God is going to zap us, fix us, and make us perfect. That makes life a farce. No purpose. If the purpose of life is to develop us into the image of Christ in character, to make us like him, to enjoy him, but it doesn't really matter because he's going to fix us anyway. Life has a purpose to make us like Jesus as much as is possible so when we get there, we will enjoy him. He will enjoy us because we're like one another. And in the given time that we have to grow, we are part of the equation. That is, we cooperate with the process so we don't. That affects how fast we grow, whether we do. The admonition, press on to maturity, repeated numerous times in the New Testament. Press on to maturity. Why? He's going to fix me anyway. Uh, what we are in character the day we step into eternity, that's what we are. And if we're a baby, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, you're infants, babies, not spiritual. It's obvious by the way you live your life. So I want to be as much like him as is possible in this life so I will press on to know him. I will press on to maturity, understanding the tools given to us for that to take place, the basic disciplines of the Christian life, of reading my Bible, gathering together with believers, giving, sacrificing, serving, bearing fruit, all those designed to develop me into the image of Christ and God in his sovereignty brings suffering, trials into my life. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, not sinless, but like Jesus in character. My part, consider it all joy. Don't fuss, don't whine, don't complain. Cooperate with God. Seek Him diligently. Okay, I got off. I'm going to hurry here. We won't finish. What number are we on? The purpose of fellowship with God. Did I give you 10? Yeah. Uh, Genesis 1.26. God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let, us, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created him. Isn't that interesting? Male and female, uh, two different, different roles, but one. Man and woman, marriage is a illustration of the Trinity. John 14, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. That's a, wow, amazing statement. 
that where I am, there you may be also. We will be with him in the place that he prepares. Revelation 3.21, he who overcomes, he who overcomes, I will grant to, sit, grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame, sat down with my father on his throne. So in the same way that Jesus overcame and seated at the right hand, so we will as well. John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. I desire that they whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you love me before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Uh, I will be in them and they will be in me and we will be in you, the unity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and the Bride of Christ. John 12, 37, Blessed are those, who, those slaves whom the Master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve, have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. That's Jesus waiting on me, serving me in eternity. Luke twenty two twenty eight. You are those who have stood by me in, in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. John fifteen fifty. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. First Thessalonians 4.17 Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be, we shall always be, always be with the Lord. Number 11, Jesus became like us in order to know us, and he desires that we would become like him so that we can know him forever. He created us capable of growth in character, and he created an environment, a world with the perfect environment to create growth. This world that we live in and the events that occur are a greenhouse, as it were, for perfect character development so that we become as much like Jesus as is possible in the lifetime that we have. In the same way the Father orchestrated the growth of his Son, he orchestrates our growth but we have to cooperate with that whole process and seek him, draw near to him, cooperate with what he does so that we can grow rapidly in this life. Philippians 3, 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. In order, in order, here's the goal, the target, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, become perfect, that's reference to character. Not that I have already arrived, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. 
that I may become that which God intended me to become. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it, yet one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That is to become perfect, to become like Him, so that I can enjoy Him and He can enjoy me forever and ever and ever. The price that He paid, emptying Himself of all that He was God, as God left heaven, became flesh, took my sin upon Himself, separated from the Father, tortured on a cross, crucified, buried, three days in hell. Why did He do all of that? Because He wants me to be with him forever, and he wants me to be like him so that I can enjoy him. Number 12, because Jesus suffered in the flesh and grew in character by the trials of life, he understands us and sympathizes with us in what we are going through. Start back at the beginning. Because Jesus suffered in the flesh and grew in character by the trials of life, He understands us and sympathizes with us in what we are going through. So, so Bob, I'm kind of keeping my eye on you. When you finish filling the blanks, I go. Because I figure you're the slowest writer in the audience. Isaiah 53, 2, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Hebrews 4, 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, passed through the heavens, that's a great picture of him leaving heaven diving down to this earth as it were. Pass through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So he sympathizes, he understands. Number 13, because Jesus totally understands what we are feeling and struggling with, he will be able to supply us with exactly what we need to succeed. He is our helper, and He has sent the helper, the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, nor the Holy Spirit, takes over our uh, choosing, our choosing, our choosing to follow, our choosing to obey, our choosing to make Him Lord, Master, King of our life, our choosing to love Him before anything else in life. Hebrews 4.14 for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy, find grace to help, to help, to live life. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He is able to come to my aid, my help, because he knows what I'm going through. 14, we will forfeit all the blessings of God, that we will forfeit all the blessings God has for us if we neglect spending time with him in prayer because we're too busy, too prideful, we're too low on self-control. 
So God has done an incredible amount for me so that I can become like him, so that I can live with him forever. But there is a point at which I cooperate with the process. I pursue the disciplines of the Christian life. One of those is spending time with him in prayer, seeking his fellowship, seeking his face, seeking his help in all that I do. Uh, Matthew 26, 40, he came to the disciples, found them sleeping, and said to Peter, do you men, uh, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Matthew 18, 20, for who are two or three have gathered together in my name. That's the purpose of prayer. Prayer, I am there in their midst. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. That's a promise to the church of Laodicea, speaking of our fellowshipping with him. John 14, Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. 15.7, If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. And so prayer is given to us, not as a way of making our life comfortable, uh, when we major on prayer as a way of eliminating problems and pressures from our life, we don't understand the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer is so that we can bear fruit and become like Him and live this life victoriously, not so we can get through it unscathed. Um, we want to suffer, suffer well, and we can because He grants us His strength, His help, His peace, His joy, and He will give those to us as we seek him and draw near to him and want to bear fruit for him and grow in character. But we lose sight of the purpose of life and we think that it's just treading water and getting through until we get to heaven. Then he fixes us, zaps us, and everything is cool. Life has a purpose. The purpose is to become like him. Everything that God does is designed to enhance our growth. And he understands us and gives us the strength to be able to deal with life and to grow at a maximum right through it. And our time with him and the gift of prayer is that we might receive grace, that is strength, to live life uh, powerfully. Number 15, unless we make very specific goals in regards to spending time with Jesus in prayer, we will pray little and struggle much. Come with confidence to the throne room of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We tend to think, I can do it by myself, except in the really bad times. If you ignore the Lord Jesus in regards to prayer and only come when you're at the end of your rope, uh, you're going to find that there's no one home. The purpose of prayer is to grow in our walk with him, our relationship with him, our oneness with him, and to rule with him now on this planet in conquering the evil one and stomping him under our feet and bearing much fruit. 16, corporate prayer, praying together with our church family, the body of Christ, tremendously bolsters our... Oh, back up there. Corporate prayer, praying together with our church family, the body of the bride of Christ. So we function when we pray together as the Trinity in agreement and oneness. And Jesus said that when you gather together for the purpose of prayer, even two or three, there I am in your presence. There I am in your presence, experiencing our unity with the Son. And we will rule with him, and now we are ruling as the church, and we rule through the avenue of prayer.
We accomplish his will through the avenue of prayer. We conquer the evil one through the avenue of prayer. We push back the kingdom of darkness through the avenue of prayer. People are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son through the avenue of prayer. And the most powerful prayer on the planet is the agreeing prayer of the bride of Christ. The bride of Christ as we agree together, pray together, pursue together uh, his will in conquering the enemy. The devil was created by God to do exactly what he's doing, to be our adversary, someone to wrestle with, to struggle with so that we would grow, and someone to conquer, someone to fight so that we would grow. And he's given us the tools of warfare. And uh, we are very much involved in that. Uh, bolsters our desire to pray, our faith in the power of prayer, and our joy during prayer. Amen.